according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Appreciate the ladies meeting for prayer and all of the uh, priorities and burdens that come up on the Wednesday morning prayer meetings. Tell you one thing you can keep in mind, uh, if you think of it, is uh, right now I've got about 15 different ideas for what to do when basics is done. What to do on the Sunday morning uh, 1045 service. And uh, at some point, although I'm having fun studying 15 different areas all simultaneously, they can't all turn into series at some point. I don't know, maybe they will. But uh, anyway, just keep that in prayer. Um, we'll, uh, we'll do what the Holy Spirit wants, but it'll, uh, it'll be kind of interesting to see. Anyway, keep that in your mind. All right, Matthew chapter 5, we're dealing with the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure we are equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Father, I do come before you this morning, thankful for your faithfulness and your mercy, rejoicing that your mercies are renewed day by day and rejoicing that your faithfulness is so great. We claim your faithfulness once again to guide us in the truth that the Holy Spirit would indeed function omnipotently, guiding us into even the deep things of God. We thank you for the truth of your word, that we not only study it mentally, intellectually, uh, academically, but Father, we hide it within our heart and we thank you for that, uh, that true benefit. We ask this morning that we might receive the word of God implanted, which is able to save the soul, and we thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Sermon on the Mount, and we are in the midst of main point five. Under main point one, we examined the structure of chapters five through seven as a discourse, and we gave you the five dominant discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. Under main point two, we we, uh, took a look at the audience, primarily disciples, but also the gathered crowds. Under point three, we took a look at the Beatitudes, the blessed bees, blessed R's. I prefer to have those as happy are, happy are, happy are. But uh, 300 years of English tradition, I think, with King James has left us kind of trapped with the blessed R's that, uh, that we have there. Even New American Standard Bible, NIV, other more modern language translations that prefer to uh, render Makarios as happy, uh, they bend to the... Uh, memorized traditions of of poetry in many cases, uh, and uh, this is one of those cases. Following the Beatitudes comes the similitudes, and we examine those under main point four. There were subpoints on all of these, but I won't go back over those. And then uh, finishing the similitudes, looking at verses 18 and following, we uh, start to examine, or shall we say 17 and following, we start to examine the longest portion of this sermon. I gave this to you under main point five. Jesus gave the longest portion of the sermon as an explanation of how the Old Testament will be applied in the kingdom. Now, hopefully we can grab hold of this and, and accept the text for what it is. Um, we have been trying hard in this study to remove ourselves from our own uh, perspective as church-age saints, uh, to forget for the moment that 
the church is about to be revealed, that it's about to be unfolded, that uh, there are 2,000 years in between the first advent and second advent. That's 2,000 years and counting, by the way. Each day that goes by adds more distance between the advents. Um, we, we're, we're trying to separate ourselves from what we know in our perspective of grace. And one of the hardest things about that is the fact that we have an entire New Testament. An entire New Testament with all of the epistles telling us how the Old Testament, uh, explaining how the Old Testament is applied to the church. All right? The New Testament, primarily the epistles, is the explanation for how the Old Testament can be applied to the church. And that is understanding principles of grace, understanding principles of the finished work of Christ on the cross, recognizing the distinctions between law and grace, and so forth. Well, forget for the moment now that you know anything about the epistles, or that you know about the church, or how Old Testament is applied to the church. Put yourself now in the Old Testament that has been a completed canon for 400 years, that is now uh, eagerly awaiting the, the revelation of the Christ, and the forerunner has said, Here is the Christ, and the forerunner has said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Christ himself has said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now a message is being delivered that is demonstrating how Genesis through Malachi is primarily the law, though, Genesis, I mean, the the, the Mosaic law in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, how the law is going to be applied in the kingdom. And that's what we're dealing with here. And I'll give you a clue it's not an abolishment of the law, it is a fulfillment of the law, and it is going beyond the external observances to the mental attitudes. Going beyond thou shalt not commit adultery to the mental attitude of lusting after a woman in your heart. All right. So when we deal with those intensifications, we want to recognize those for what they are. Okay. And if I can give you those words of caution, then maybe we can uh, handle it uh, appropriately here in this text. All right, so verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I do not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The law or the prophets is a recognition of the Bible, of the canon in this time. Sometimes it was called the law and the writings and the prophets. Uh, sometimes that was just simply shortened to the law and the prophets. But the reference was to the canon at that time, Genesis to Malachi. Sometimes it's even just simply shortened to the law, which in a broader sense applies to the canon of that day, what we call today the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. So do not think that I came to abolish the canon, that is the written word. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Remarkable that there are proportions of greatness and 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 uh, superiority and inferiority and and the greatest and the least. And and there are degrees of of glory in the kingdom um, context. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you. And then it goes on, and we'll talk about the uh, standard of righteousness here in a moment. Now, under this, we didn't get very far. I think we got through A, B, and C, if I'm not mistaken. The work assignment of Jesus Christ, 
in first advent and second advent was not and will not be to abolish the law or the message of the prophets. Neither in first advent, say in first advent, he didn't abolish the law or the prophets. He will not do that in second advent. Vital that we recognize that. And that's a trap because we have the book of Hebrews and we're automatically we're going, no, no, once and for all sacrifice does away with animal sacrifices. And we're saying whatever is obsolete is ready to disappear. All right. You're approaching it from a church age standpoint with what you know of mystery doctrine. That is not appropriate to read that into this text. Also recognize in the second advent in the millennial kingdom, there will be animal sacrifices. Okay, and we got a good handle on that when we taught the book of Ezekiel. Got a good handle on that when we did our Through the Bible series. So it was not to abolish the law or the prophets. And that same principle holds true not only for first advent, but also for second advent. The fulfilling fulfilling of the Old Testament uh, was not totally done at the cross. It fulfilled the redemptive side of it. It fulfilled the sacrificial side of it, clearly. But there is still the kingdom side of it, the reigning side of it, the uh, Israel in peace and a, a light to the nation side of it. That hasn't been fulfilled. That is what the millennium is all about. All right. Secondly, now, point B, the passing of the law will occur with the passing away of heaven and earth. It is interesting that in the description of forever it describes forever in terms that are not truly forever it says until heaven and earth pass away which is not truly a statement of forever it is a statement of a a significant event that has been prophesied both in the old testament and the new testament so we're not just simply reading uh second peter or revelation into this because we have isaiah 66 as the basis for this as well isaiah 65 and isaiah 66 the last two chapters of isaiah deal with the new heavens and the new earth and the promise uh, that the present heavens and earth will indeed pass away so that would be understood by the uh, audience here in matthew chapter 5 now um, let me just supplement this here a little bit. Matthew, uh, let me go back to a couple of these Isaiah texts and then make sure we're solid on Matthew 24 and then we'll look at Hebrews 8. Because as I recall, we did not get together into Hebrews 8. So in Isaiah, how many chapters are in Isaiah? How many books in our Bible? It's the same answer both times. 66. How many books in the Old Testament? 39. That makes 27 in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, when you read Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, you've got an aspect there that is very much correlating to law. But then when you cross over to Isaiah chapter 40, all of a sudden you've got some uh, wonderful passages on grace and salvation and the promise of, uh, of comfort. And there's some amazing things that begin to happen in chapter 40. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, says your God. And uh, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Sounds like John the Baptist, doesn't it? Interesting how that comes in Isaiah chapter 40. What a great preview for the Gospel of Matthew. Anyway, you can use the 66 chapters of Isaiah as an outline for the canon in a lot of ways, with the 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, and so forth. So when we get into Isaiah 65 and 66... 
Where do you think the parallels are going to come in? Revelation, see. And so it's, uh, it is pretty interesting to see how, how this happens. Now, uh, in Isaiah 65, 17, it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. What former things? Well, the former things of the old heavens and the old earth. And that very much is consistent with Revelation 22, where the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Those former things in Revelation 22, though, are specifically uh, identified with um, specifically identified with is that the city of Austin Electric. Oh, thank you, Lord. All right. Uh, I think Sharon knows the right uh, electrical pole to point them to. The reason why we didn't have uh, air conditioning on Sunday is because city of Austin has problems on their poles. All right. Um, in Revelation 22, uh, again, there's the forgetting of the uh, of the things that have passed away, the wiping away of the tears. Um, chapter 21 and verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. and There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Is he going to be able to take care of that? Did you point him to the right pole? Right. Oh, okay, super. All right, thank you. All right, but still in the context of Isaiah 65, uh, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Now, I ask you, what does that include? What does that include? Does that include what we currently recognize as the canon of Scripture? Does that include the law and the prophets? Because Jesus Christ truly did say, until heaven and earth passed away, uh, not one jot or tittle, not this, even the smallest portion of the law. But he does demonstrate that that is not an eternal statement, that is a finite statement with a boundary, a boundary that we can identify in the context of prophetic scriptures. All right? Something to consider for future studies. In terms of... Um, what the form of revelation might take after this form is passed away. We have other indications of uh, writing directly upon our heart, knowing, uh, knowing him with uh, the word of God written upon our heart and other things like that. We will take those passages into consideration um, at future points of this very study, of the life of Christ study. All right. Uh, back to Matthew then in chapter 24. Matthew 24. A theme that repeats itself, not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but also here in the Mount Olivet Discourse. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Interestingly, though, it's his words, not necessarily in uh, the written form of his words. Is that making sense? The, prophet, the law and the prophets is the written text of the Old Testament. It's a different statement than what he's saying here about his words. Finally, Hebrews 8 and verse 13, I think, will help us in this regard. Because this is the passage that deals with obsolescence. 
whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. All right? Recognize the principle of obsolescence and we'll have some more to say on that. I believe I made more notes on obsolescence coming up. But you'll notice if the first covenant with reference to the Mosaic law in verse 7 had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. (laughs) If Mosaic law could have brought humanity to a sinless, righteous state before the Father for eternal fellowship, well then, that's what we would have had, and that's all we would have had. There would have been no need for something beyond that. But the author of Hebrews here is making the point, because we have a New Testament after the law, there's a reason why. Okay? And, um, and, and that's the, the entire logic of this, of this, uh, of this testimony. Verse 8 says, for finding fault with them, he says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord. Well, I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. All right. Something else to remember in your daily prayers. All right. Now, New Covenant. Is it with uh, the church? I'm giving you all kinds of extra credit here this morning. New Covenant is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Hebrews 9, uh, 8, 8 as uh, citing the uh, text from Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one. Now, obsolete in verse 13. He said a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, keep that in mind when we get into the law, when we get into what Schaefer called kingdom law. And I was really thankful that he coined that term. He may, maybe he took that from somebody prior to him, but that's where I first encountered it was kingdom law. What we have exactly here in Matthew 5. All right. And when we read through the issues here in Matthew 5, it doesn't sound like law is obsolete. It doesn't sound like law is passing away. It sounds rather that law is being ratcheted up. It's being intensified. It's being made even more um, overwhelming, if possible. You say, I thought the Old Testament law was pretty overwhelming, right? No one could measure up. No one could fulfill it. Only Christ could fulfill it. So why now are we expanding it even beyond that? Okay. Legitimate question, and hopefully um, casting it in this in this tone will help us to, to, to really grab hold of it. Now, point C. Similar to point A, where we said what the work assignment will not be, to abolish the law or the message of the prophets. Under point C, we find out what the work assignment is, was, and will be. The work assignment of Jesus Christ in his first and second advents was, and will be, to fulfill the law and the prophets. Okay? Under point A, I told you what it wasn't, which was in verse 17. A, I did not come to abolish it. The rest of that verse, I came to fulfill it. Now, 
I don't think believers really struggle with the first part of that. In other words, first advent. You can look at first advent and say, yeah, yeah, he fulfilled the Old Testament. Okay? But they, they, they do something different with second advent. They want to do something totally different with, with second advent. Failing to recognize that second advent is also fulfilling the Old Testament. Okay? Just like first advent was fulfilling Old Testament. Second Advent is fulfilling Old Testament. As it goes on. Because, remember, when is the Law and the Prophet going to be passing away? When is all this going to be accomplished? Not at the cross, not at Armageddon, but at the passing of the heavens heavens and the earth. The end of the millennium. Okay? Not at Armageddon. Not at the beginning of the millennium. In fact, it's going to take the entirety of the millennium. It's going to take the final angelic and human rebellion of Gog Magog. It's going to take the final destruction of all adversaries in order for all to be accomplished. Okay? I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Bible helps or particular books that will talk about Old Testament prophecy. Maybe you have some at home or in a library somewhere. (coughs) Books that uh, chart out prophecies, uh, first advent prophecies and how they were fulfilled, right? Like, uh, you know, charting out Isaiah 7, 14, a virgin shall conceive and have a son and then showing how in Matthew, you know, that was fulfilled. Do you have anything like that? Have you seen things like that? Okay. A number of authors have done things like that. But when you stop to consider the number of first advent prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ, and we can read about them in the Gospels, okay, that number is actually smaller than the second advent prophecies that to this very day, 2006 AD, have not been fulfilled. They are yet future. They will be fulfilled in their second advent, okay? More. And I forget the exact ratio, but coming off the top of my head now, I'm thinking it's two to one. I'm thinking that there's twice as many second advent prophecies as first advent prophecies. In other words, when you look at all of the prophetic scripture, only about a third of them pertain to first advent and the remaining two thirds apply to second advent in their fulfillment. So he will fulfill and that includes the kingdom, that includes the millennium, which is why law is still going to be a feature. In a, in a kingdom form. Okay? Law will still be a feature, but in a kingdom form. And you'll see what I mean by that here in a moment. Okay. Verse 20. I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we understand that from elsewhere. This was a phony Righteousness, wasn't it? We've seen that throughout, even to this point in the life of Christ study. We've seen how phony their righteousness was. We've seen how artificial their, their uh, way of life was. And point D, rank in the kingdom of heaven. This is a summary of both verse 19 and 20. Rank in the kingdom of heaven is established as a reward. Notice. Rank in the kingdom of heaven is established as a reward for faithful obedience 
to the law's commandments. Okay? That was in verse 19. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches them others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right? Does that sound like works reward? Does that sound like follow these principles and the reward status is there? That's exactly what that verse is saying. Okay? Under kingdom law. Now, Rank in the kingdom of heaven is established as a reward for faithful obedience to the law's commandments. But the standard for righteousness will surpass the standard of the scribes and Pharisees, which is verse 20. Meaning (laughs) that it has to be the absolute standard of righteousness that can only come by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Meaning that you can have all of the righteousness in the world developed through the law and it's worthless. In other words, this generation, the, the tribulation generation that enters into the millennium will do so because they're regenerate. They'll do so because they have God's righteousness imputed to their account. See, they will come to the same understanding that Paul came to. Paul said, you know, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, he said, I was blameless. Paul said he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And uh, the uh, issues there, uh, not knowing about uh, the righteousness of God and seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. Say, so what did they end up doing? Developing their legalistic systems of, uh, of, of their own personal human glory. So, yes, there are stages. Uh, there are the, uh, the system of rank in verse 19. That rank, greatest to least, is predicated upon uh, faithfulness to the obedience of the statutes of the law. But the absolute standard is God's absolute standard of righteousness. I'm hoping that makes sense. Because simply observing the law won't get you there. Simply observing the law as an unregenerate person, doesn't get you there any more than the Pharisees can't get there. See, if all you have is the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. All right? Is this making sense? Okay. It might be a little awkward for us because the idea of keeping the law is is foreign to a church-age saint. Right? We don't keep the law. Christ kept the law. Christ fulfilled the law. We're in Christ. We have God's righteousness. We now walk in the newness of life. Okay? Um, We don't keep the law. We can observe moral principles from the law, but we don't keep the law. We don't observe the law. I don't observe Passover. You ask me when Passover is, I'd have to go look it up. Okay? And if, if, if I missed it, if it goes by and all of a sudden I look on the calendar, oh, Passover was yesterday. How about that? I won't sweat it because I don't keep Passover. I don't keep any of the Jewish feasts. I don't offer any animal sacrifices. All right? Don't make any pilgrimages to a Jerusalem temple. Of course, there isn't one standing at the moment. I don't keep the law. Millennial believers will. They will be once again observant of not only Mosaic law, 
but as amended by Jesus Christ, the king, they will be observant of kingdom law. And that's what this passage is all about. When he says, you have heard, but I say to you. Okay, there's a whole series of contrasts coming up. And what Jesus Christ is doing is taking the Mosaic law and amplifying it. He's taking the Mosaic law and um, amending it, so to speak, by these additional mental attitude stipulations. There will be a feature of kingdom law. So the standard for righteousness will surpass the standard of the scribes and Pharisees. Point E, kingdom law will be an intensification of Mosaic law to include the mental attitude sins which produce the overt activity sins of commission and omission. Every mental, every overt sin, whether it was a sin of commission or a sin of omission, every overt sin has a mental attitude sin behind it. You make the decision to commit the sin before you actually do it. Or before you actually not do it if it's a sin of omission. Kingdom law will be an intensification of Mosaic law to include the mental attitude sins which produce the overt activity sins of commission and omission. And that's verses 21 through 47. Now that's a long stretch. 21 through 47. We're going we're gonna to read through it. We're going to glean some principles from it. If uh, someday, if we uh, give a complete series on the Sermon on the Mount, something more in-depth than our current life of uh, Christ's study um, permits, then this would be probably two or three months worth of messages right here. Verse by verse, principle by principle. As it is, you've got point E. <laughs> All right? You've got point E with... Um, 27 verses as a proof text and I uh, have not delineated uh, subpoints or, or principles under this. We'll do it here in class, but I don't have uh, notes to do that. Now, you have heard in verse 21, followed, but I say to you in verse 22. Okay. Tragically, <laughs> <coughs> cults today and throughout history will use that as their permission to scrap the Bible. Because they say that's what Jesus did. Right? And they'll use this as their justification to throw out the Bible and say, here now is what you should follow. Right? Muhammad gave us the Quran or... Um, Joseph Smith gave the Book of Mormon or, or Mary Baker Eddy gave the uh, science and health with key to the scriptures or what have you. OK. Charles Russell and the, gave the Watchtower and all that other information. Watchtower tract uh, writings. Now. They say, well, that's what Jesus did. You have heard, but I say to you, didn't he just throw out the whole Old Testament and give us something new to go with? No, he didn't do it. Didn't do that at all. And he even said that. Uh, do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. So you can't read that into what he's saying here. When he says you have heard, but I say to you, he's not changing it. I mean, he's not deleting it. He's not uh, voiding it. 
He's adding to it. He's making it harder. He is not only endorsing what it says, but he's then intensifying what it says. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. You understand what this implication is? To an observant Jew, to somebody who is expected to, to uh, follow the, the rituals and the, and the uh, stipulations of, of Mosaic law observance, now every mental attitude sin of anger is going to require an animal sacrifice. Is going to require them to come as if they had committed the sin of murder. See, in the Old Testament, it was only the overt deeds. <laughs> you know, they, because they had human kings and human priests and human judges. But now they've got God Himself as their king. Who knows their heart? Whose standard of righteousness is indeed offended and violated by a mental attitude sin, even though other men may not see it. And now those sins will require appropriate uh, sacrificial activity. Liable before the court. And uh, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing. <laughs> okay. Shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So, mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue. It's an intensification beyond what the overt sin, uh, the commandment in the, in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, is a prohibition against the overt sin. This intensifies it therefore if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering um, and then there's other things that happen there uh, down in verse 27 you have heard followed by a, but i say to you in verse 28 you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery but i say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the same sacrifice, if you committed adultery and you have to come in with a sin offering, a trespass offering, for the overt activity, well now guess what? Now you have to bring the offering for the mental attitude. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Um, all right, verse 31. Here is the, it was said, but I say to you. And the application is in the sense of the uh, divorce permission that was given in Deuteronomy. The intensification of it that will be enforced in under kingdom law. The intensification will be enforced under kingdom law. All right. It's remarkable that um, so many uh, church age saints take verse 32 and apply it in a church age context. And they do not uh, do the same with verse 28 or with verse 22 and the circumstances there. But they'll take one element of kingdom law, inject it into the age of grace and uh, view that as being normative for uh, for uh, church age application. Uh, verse 33, you have heard 
And then followed by the verse 34, but I say to you. And with respect to vows and uh, what would be expected of them in uh, the millennial kingdom. Uh, Verse 38. With the you have heard, but I say to you in verse 39. Remarkable. Turn the other cheek. Tons of believers apply that and say that's church age application. That's what grace is all about. Reality. It's a kingdom passage. It will be a part of kingdom law. It will be uh, observed with forced observance, as all law practices are. But it is looking forward to the kingdom. It is not um, a passage for the immediate application of the church. Now, we have principles, of course. We glean principles from kingdom law like we glean principles from Mosaic law. We don't, we're not mandatory and we're not uh, compelled to observe either. But we can clearly draw principles from both. Uh, verse 43 has another, you have heard. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And then followed by a 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. All right. Um, that takes you down through verse 47. That concludes the, you have heards, but I say to you, and all of the applications go with it there. Like I say, at some point, if we did a very thorough Sermon on the Mount series, which would take, I'm guessing, a year or longer, almost like basics has taken us a little over a year, uh, then we would have uh, additional application on each one of those. Now, the summary statement under point six. Our goal is the Father's perfection. Our goal, and, and I probably should restate that, the goal of believers under kingdom law is the Father's perfection. Now, it is our goal as well um, as a concept, but in this context, it is the goal of, uh, of uh, kingdom saints. Our goal is the Father's perfection. It's stated here in Matthew 5:48, similar to the statement in Leviticus 19, 2. And I think we can, by extension, I think we can draw a lot of applications from this as a concept. Okay, What does it say in verse 48? It says, therefore, as a summary conclusion, as a, as a uh, summation of everything that preceded it under kingdom law, why is it that now mental attitude is being added to overt activity? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, simply observing some externals and not having the mental attitude behind it. I mean, think about it. You, if you live a, a total life of, of jealousy and anger and lust and mental attitude, everything, but you never actually follow through and kill anybody, right? Is that rewardable? Is that laudable? Does that imitate the Father? Is that perfection as the Father in heaven is perfect? I mean, I'd hate to think that the standard for rewardability of the judgment seat of Christ is basically just, well, I, I never kill anybody. <laughs> oh, okay, well, you never kill anybody? Oh, fine, okay. As long as you never kill anybody. No, that's not the standard. Okay. 
and uh, you know, or even any of these other things, adultery and and um, and other things. You know, oh well, yeah, you never did the overt deed, but you wanted to. You thought about it. You wished you coulda. You know, um, as far as uh, the vows go, or as far as the uh, eye for an eye and other things. Yeah, you you followed the rules externally, but your mental attitude was uh, anything but perfect. All right, now in Leviticus, though, Leviticus 19.2, the statement is highlighting the uh, holiness of God. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so just like by going from overt to mental attitude, we have an intensification. Here, too, we have an intensification. Beyond simply holiness to perfection. See, trying to have God's holiness through human effort is impossible. But imagine now we've just intensified it. We've gone from holiness now to total perfection. Being perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Vocabulary on that is teleos, number 5046, and... One that uh, we won't study this morning, but one that uh, we've seen already in the, in the book of James. And uh, part of why we can consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. Because it's the trying of our faith that produces endurance. And the perfect result of endurance is that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It was fitting for him to perfect the author of our salvation through sufferings. And that's how Jesus Christ was perfected from the standpoint of his humanity. That's how we are perfected in the outworking of the Christian way of life. It's through our sufferings. It's through following, taking up our cross and following him. So the goal is perfection. We, of course, understand that from a church age standpoint. Kingdom saints are going to try to understand it from a kingdom law standpoint. And it's going to be interesting to see how, uh, how it is that uh, kingdom law is going to demonstrate what Mosaic law couldn't do. Would we not agree Mosaic law was a failure? Mosaic law did not, it wasn't a failure, it, it, it accomplished its purpose. It, it taught humanity that it couldn't earn their way to heaven, couldn't earn their way in God's favor, that no one could measure up. So it accomplished that. But, what now is this kingdom law going to accomplish? What is kingdom law going to do beyond what Mosaic law didn't do, given now that we've injected mental attitude on top of overt activity? What is kingdom law going to accomplish? Any ideas? Well, we've only covered chapter 5. There's still chapter 6 and chapter 7, so don't worry about it. <laughs> All right? But... No, no, we won't, but they will. Okay. Well, that's exactly right. It won't be by their own effort. And that is where, by the way, our class is going in uh, our current First Corinthians series, where we learn what our Sabbath rest is all about in the book of Hebrews. Uh, let, me, let me draw a picture for you here. If I remember how to do this. <clears throat> Dispensationally speaking, um, before the cross, 
you have uh, believers and they are under law. All right. And after the cross and, of course, until now, the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost. And so now we're under grace. Now, if you were living at that time, what did what did you do? You passed on through. You matriculated, as it were. Okay. Now, and for those who did, they received the Holy Spirit. They became church-age saints. All right. Now, uh, Holy Spirit departs at the rapture. And you have the tribulation. Is the tribulation an age of law or grace? It is the 70th week. And what were the first 69 weeks? They were law. Okay. It is law, which is kind of hard for us to envision because we view as grace as replacing law. We view grace as, you know, that Christ died on the cross, now law is done away with and, and we're under grace, you know, and, and so forth. We have a hard time envisioning this because of where we are, but with the Holy Spirit, universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit removed at the rapture, with the church removed at the rapture, with the stewardship reverting back to Israel for the fulfillment of God's plan for Israel, yes, they're back under law again. Okay? But now something's going to happen at the second advent, particularly related to the Holy Spirit. And we have in the second advent, we have another outpouring of the Holy Spirit, similar to what happened at Pentecost, only rather than being limited, it's going to be worldwide. Okay? Pentecost, it was universal, but it was universal for believers, so it was limited. Here, it's going to be worldwide. Why? Because all the unbelievers are removed at the end of the tribulation. When we enter into the millennial kingdom, we have 100% believers on the, on the face of the earth. To start. To start. Right. And when the Holy Spirit pours forth, Joel 2, 28 and 29, then they are going to have, for the first time now, think about this, they're going to be placed under, they're still under law, but now they're placed under kingdom law. They're going to be placed under kingdom law as the uh, constitution of the kingdom law is indicating here in Matthew 5. They're going to be placed under kingdom law, but they're going to have something they never had under Mosaic law. See, when God gave them the 612 commandments of Mosaic law, and said, follow them. If you break one, you broke, you've broken them all. When God put them under Mosaic law, He did not give them any giftedness or empowerment or indwelling of the Holy Spirit or any divine provision to get it done. Right? Did He? No, uh, very few Old Testament believers received the Holy Spirit. And when they did receive the Holy Spirit, it was for the purpose of ministry for prophesying or for delivering as a judge or for ruling uh, wisdom to rule. No one was given the Holy Spirit and gifted ability, spirit empowerment to keep the law. But here they have spirit empowerment. 
spirit empowerment. The one thing they weren't given to try to keep Mosaic law. Now they're being placed under kingdom law, which is, in my mind, a thousand times worse than Mosaic law. Because you can commit a thousand mental attitude sins before you finally do the overt deed, right? Okay. Now they're placed under kingdom law, but he's supplying them Holy Spirit empowerment. Keep these things in mind. Now, also keep in mind, something Ethel said a moment ago made me remember this. Um, These folks here are still mortal human beings. Mortal human beings. By the time we get there, of course... We've gone up here to get our resurrection body. We're we're coming back down here. And we are here on the throne with Jesus Christ reigning. He's the king, we're the bride. Isaiah uh, Psalm 45 calls us the queen. Doesn't call us the queen, but Psalm 45 is the psalm of the queen. Now that the church has been unfolded, we can read into Psalm 45 and understand the church there. Um, We're resurrected and glorified. We are no longer mortal. Mortality has been put off. Immortality has been put on. We are not the mortal subjects of kingdom law. We are the immortal queen, the immortal bride of Christ, enforcing kingdom law, ruling, reigning, not subject to kingdom law, but enforcing kingdom law, reigning with Christ. Okay, but believers who live through the tribulation and enter into the millennium are still mortal. Which is how they still have babies, which is how these generations come, which is how they die in the millennium. And it says the youth will die at a hundred, you know, the hundred year old will die and everybody at the funeral will say, oh, how sad they were so young. Right. They'll say they had all their centuries in front of them and they died at a hundred. Isn't that sad? Kind of like today, if you know a child dies or something, and we say, oh, they were so young. Human viewpoint views as, as tragic. Well, Isaiah 65 says that's going to be the circumstance for the 100-year-old in the millennium. All right? And uh, so keep in mind that as these folks are operating, <coughs> as these folks are operating, for the first time, they're going to have enablement. They're going to have spiritual power. They're going to have the Holy Spirit indwelling them for the first time. All right. Chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 5 simply ends with the expectation of perfection. So chapter 6 is now going to continue that. Alright, chapter 6 continues the Sermon on the Mount with practical messages for believers to live their perfect life. For believers to live their perfect life. Now we're going to draw applications ourselves, sure. Church age believers can read this text and observe the principles and make application today. But let's let's remember that this is an application of kingdom law. 
This is further describing why it is that mental attitude is accountable. Why it is that mental attitude sins are um, required for sacrifice, just as overt sins are. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your father who is in heaven. See, all that is, is pride. If you are practicing your righteousness so that people will observe you, then you're doing it for the wrong reason. You're doing something, practicing your righteousness. Notice, your righteousness. <laughs> Just like the Pharisees' righteousness. Um, but they're doing it for, so that other people can see what they're doing. And that's the wrong mental attitude. And you will answer for that. Because kingdom law is about mental attitude. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, now here are the examples. Giving, praying, and, and um, fasting. But verse 1 says it all. Okay? Everything that follows here in, in uh, 2 through 18 expands on verse 1. Whether it's giving or prayer or um, fasting. And also... Uh, those expand on verse 1, and then when we get to storing up treasures on earth, that is also coming out of verse 1, you'll notice, because it talks about reward with your Father who is in heaven. So often that's confusing. You say, well, how do I store up treasures in heaven? <laughs> right? I mean, I know how to put money in the bank. I drive over there and I put it in. <laughs> I'm sticking an envelope and write my name on it and fill out a deposit slip and send it through the little tube thing. Okay? I don't walk into the bank. I drive through the thing with top down on good days. I know how to make deposits in an earthly bank. How do I make deposits in heaven? Now, that, that is a fair question. And um, I think it's... it's, it's um, misunderstood or mistaught because the, the the people try to teach verses 19 through 21 and and they try to separate it from verse 1 and you really can't do that it is tied to verse 1 verse 19 is so tied to verse 1 i can't tell you how tied it is it's just because verses 2 through 18 are in between there that people miss that connection but all verses 2 through 18 are an expansion of verse 1a. And verses 19 through 21 are an expansion of verse 1b. Are you seeing that? Verse 1b is otherwise you have no reward with your father who's in heaven. Okay. And the follow up to that is verses 19 through 21. Are you seeing that? Reward with your father who's in heaven. The... First part of verse 1, 6-1-A, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, that is amplified in 2 through 18. But 1-B that talks about your reward with your Father who is in heaven, that then gets um, explained in verses 19 through 21. All right, so when you give, 
Point eight. Our greater than pharisaical righteousness is to be practiced before God in heaven. And once again, I use the word our. To be technical, I don't want you to misunderstand here. You could say believers in the kingdom of heaven, believers in the millennium, who are expected to have greater than pharisaical righteousness, are to practice that righteousness before God in heaven. Okay? But you and I can draw the similar principles in our own stewardship, in our own dispensation. Because being prideful and, and seeking human acclaim is, is not appropriate in our stewardship either. Okay? Any, it's no different than it will be in the millennium. It wasn't right in the Old Testament. It wasn't right for Gentiles in their stewardship. So it is a principle for universal application, even though specifically this is a text that is directed towards the kingdom of heaven. So I use the word our, and hopefully you can understand the loose connection there with our. Our greater than pharisaical righteousness is to be practiced before God in heaven. And that holds true in giving, in prayer, in fasting, and anything else you'd care to illustrate. Okay? So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. See? You're walking out and you make sure before anybody, you know, closing prayer, you're the first one up, you run to the back of the room and then you waver them and say, hey, everybody look at me. I'm putting $10 in the grace box. Right? And you're announcing everything. Totally oblivious to the fact that, you know, some other believer uh, before class even started, quietly, before nobody even knew what was happening, you know, had put 500 bucks in the grace box. Didn't say boo, didn't say nothing, just slipped it in there, sat down. Okay? But pride wants to uh, trumpet. Pride wants to highlight, look at me. To me be the glory, great things I have done. Right? That is entirely the wrong approach. That is the self-centered approach. Personal selfishness, personal glory. And, sadly, it is the driving force in much of pop culture you know, Christianity today. We're going to do great things for God. God's going to be impressed with us, right? We're going to save this world. We're going to make this world a better place. That's the lie. We're doing no such thing. When you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So this is how you lay up your treasures in heaven. When you're serving under grace principles, when you're doing so not for your own personal glory, when you're doing so for the glory of your Savior and for the pleasure of your Father, then you just simply leave it with Him. Right? And He rewards. Okay, well, I'm out of time. We will return to chapter 6 next week and draw this out some more. We'll also deal with the so-called Lord's Prayer in uh, verses 9 and following. And um, some of the other aspects that come here, I think. I was about to say next week could wrap this up. That's that's not right. All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Father, we just rejoice that we have such an opportunity. We give these things to you in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.